So have you guys heard about the Scientology thing? I've yeah. heard it's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> it <laughs> has science the in the name. <laughs> Welcome to episode 41 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. I'm Sherry. And I'm Rory. And this is a explicit warning for our listeners today. Uh, today, we're going to talk about a few topics around that might include uh, abuse, uh, sexual abuse, sexual exploitation. Um, so just a trigger warning for our listeners. And uh, if you don't want to listen to that, uh, you may elect to look in, if your podcast supports it, there'll be some chapter markers that you can skip uh, certain content. Um, but otherwise, uh, you feel free to skip this episode if you feel like you need to. But today, we're talking about cults. So, who, Sherry, can you tell us what makes a cult? What makes a cult a cult? Yeah, because I feel like and this, I don't know if this is controversial or not, but like a lot of religions kind of like border on that culty idea of you've got, um, you know, one person who is the head of the organization who everybody worships um, and idealizes. And then um, you've got all these other little elements. So I feel like sometimes there's a bit of a blurry line, um, especially my experience with religion. Um, yeah. So there's like four key elements, um, that they have like within them. So first is behavior control. So, um, they control things like, um, you know, where you might want to live or how you might want to live. Um, they sometimes regulate, uh, your diet. They might deprive people of sleep. That's something that's come up really often in my research is like that deprivation of sleep. So, so these people become part of this organization and it's their entire lives and they like don't sleep. They just work, work, work for this organization. And so there might also be some financial exploitation, uh, manipulation, dependence, and that's all built into like the rules and regulations of this cult. So that's kind of the behavior control aspect of it. And then there's an information control aspect of cults as well. Um, so they're maybe withholding or distorting information. They um, th There's like one person who controls all of the information and then they, they allow access to certain people and things like that. So there's an access kind of thing that happens. Um, there's propaganda that goes on sort of in terms of the information control. Uh, and then the next one is thought control. So um, they um, require members to internalize the group's doctrine as truth. So they are um, sort of, you know, giving this um, binary of like our our way of living, our way of thinking is is truth. Sometimes people's um, names or identities are changed uh, by joining this cult, and um, and they they often use uh, emotional control as well as the last sort of element of uh, the cult, and so that's manipulating somebody's emotions. Um, there's a lot of like gaslighting or trying to convince somebody that they are uh, in need of the cult, um, and um, 
They make the person feel that the problems are always their own fault and never the group's fault or the cult's fault. Um, And they're instilling a fear of the outside world. And so those are kind of the major elements of a cult and what kind of makes a cult. Yeah. Is it also usually there's usually like a charismatic leader that essentially forms a group or kind of leads the group? And is that one person that people tend to be obedient to? Yeah, I noticed that too, Kenny. In, uh, the things I read that it usually does start with a charismatic leader, often one who's so self-absorbed, they proclaim themselves a prophet of some sort. They see the truth of the universe in a way that the others who you know will eventually become the non-cult members, the unenlightened, they can't see it that way. And it becomes part of that us versus them mentality that Sherry talked about. And also kind of that information uh, control that you mentioned it's it's always that that leader has the key information but will not disseminate it to mm-hmm. their followers until they either reach a certain level or they'll feed that information in pieces and this information uh, might be something that their followers are desiring whether it's a promise of answers or happiness of some sort yeah, you got to move through the levels before you're ready for that great truth that charismatic leader possesses. Mm-hmm. And it it seems to be what why do why is there certain individuals that are susceptible to kind of uh, following these cults? I did read a little bit on this, um, and there was one point that was made that uh, said that new recruits are quote, love bombed. So in the beginning, they're like showered with love and praise and compliments and things like that so that you get attached to the people that are involved. But often mm-hmm. it like, you know, it's hard to pinpoint who it, who goes into a cult. And one of the documentaries I watched um, called The Vow um, from HBO, and then there was another one um the PBS um, Jonestown documentary, there was one quote that that was said in both of them. The quote was, people don't join a cult. Like, nobody joins a cult. You join a good idea, and then you kind of get brainwashed along the way. Um, And I found that really interesting because it's sort of like, these are really smart people sometimes who are joining these cults, but they want that sense of community um, and to feel loved, and and those are sorts of things that that we as humans just want, and we want to be better humans. And so, these people who are actually really smart are joining cults. So it's not just like stupid people or people who are like so depressed or on the fringes of society. Like there's those people as well, or like vulnerable homeless populations, whatever. There's there's always those people, but. Um, it's also people who just want to live a better life and who are smart, intellectual people. Yeah, I agree with you because I think it's very tempting to consider people who join cults to have been emotionally vulnerable in some way. And that made them susceptible to the cult's message that any reasonable person, which we all self-identify as, would never be susceptible to these things. But it can be a far more insidious methods of getting you in there. It could just be an acquaintance of yours who you meet in another activity. You know, you form a bond with them and then they take you to perform in this uh, ritual that they have. And before you know it, you're, you're falling victim to the kinds of brainwash techniques that they 
they've perfected and you lose your your grip on things gradually not all at once you don't and they don't have like flags hanging saying hey here's a cult come join us and the thing is people in a cult don't think they are in a cult Mm -hmm. like if you if you talk to anyone that's been in a cult they never even conceived of the notion that they were in a cult it's only when they are out of the cult and deprogrammed do they finally realize that they've been in a cult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always, I like, I tried to think back to my younger days when I was like looking at different religions and stuff. And I think I could have easily joined a cult because I was looking for a community of people. And um, I remember sort of, um, I guess, speaking and, and doing lessons in a sense with my Jehovah's Witness friend and, and seeing what their religion was. And it was very, like, it was a little culty because um, they have these, like, secret meetings that you can't be a part of until you're actually a fully member, like, fully baptized member. And and once you leave the religion, you're excommunicated and stuff like that. And, and that was, like, that was, like, way too much for me. But, like... If there was some sort of religion or something that was all about love and all about, like, they had the answers to everything and um, there was this sort of illusion of comfort that you could be a part of, like, I might have gotten involved with something like that. I could see it easily happening. Mm -hmm. Would you have ever become so subservient that that the more negative uh, aspects of the cult would have escaped your notice, do you think? Probably. I mean, when I was younger, yeah, because you just want to be a part of something. You don't really think about, like, you know, how you're being subservient. You think about how you're helping other people. And I think I think really women are so taught to be, you know, self-sacrificing. And and that sometimes leads into that subservient nature of, of you know, like, society is telling us we have to help others. We have to be the caretakers and things like that. And so then, and then you lose yourself in that. So I could totally see myself being subservient as sad as, as bad as that sounds, but mm-hmm. it's yeah. true. But human beings, I mean, we were communal creatures, right? We want to be part of a community. We, uh, we were idealistic in terms of wanting to contribute to society and help be helpful to others. And, and that's wh- how cults can potentially kind of manipulate you into joining them mm-hmm. by cr- by leveraging these um, aspects of our humanity and uh, essentially abusing their power to kind of manipulate you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could have been part of a cult. It would have been so sad. And I really feel for these people. After watching all these documentaries and stuff about cults, I just feel for these people. I I can't imagine what it must be like to have, one, escaped a cult or two just even been in a cult like it's gosh it's ruined people's lives even if you're you know someone like me who's thinking i'm far too cynical that i could never buy into that you know there are methods that cults employ for people like me too you know enough sleep deprivation violence isolation you know people have breaking points even if you think you are mentally strong enough that you would never succumb you know if it's a fear for your life yeah because your whole life becomes the cult like you, you give up everything else. Like a lot of the times they ask you to move to a different place um, or sell off your personal belongings and things like that. And once you do that, once you have no personal belongings or anything like that, what have you got that's outside of this cult? It, it just becomes yeah. your life. 
Yeah. So they, I mean, these cults, they tend to kind of chip away at you over time. And the longer you stay in a cult, the harder it is for you to leave because it's harder for you to admit that you've been wrong. <laughs> and the subconscious in your brain that has been telling you this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, uh, gets squashed. I mean, it gets harder and harder to admit to yourself that you have wasted <laughs> X amount of years in a fake uh, religion with fake promises. It, 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 it's difficult for one to kind of admit that. Mm -hmm. And you are essentially stuck in, in this cult. And who wants to admit that they were a part of a cult? I would hide that information until the day I died. <laughs> I just stay in it. <laughs> just stay in it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> if you're so yeah. embarrassed, like to get out, I don't know. Maybe you would just stay in it until it like broke up, or maybe you'd like secretly be a spy for the government, for the FBI, or whoever is is looking at this group. Yeah. Or, you know, in some cults, they, as you mentioned already, they for make you move. And if you're moved into, for example, the middle of the jungle, there is nowhere else to go <laughs> once you're in the middle of That's the jungle. Right. Where else are you going to go? <laughs> so um, so in, in this case, this is the uh, Jonestown cult um, back in the 1970s. I think it started, uh, it, it was... Uh, from it started in the 1950s in the U.S., uh, where Jim Jones was a self-ordained Christian minister who essentially uh, was running a church in the U.S. Uh, he had massed, you know, a large following, um, kind of running social and medical programs for the needy, promoted messages of social equality and racial justice. You know, it sounded all fantastic, right? I mean, this is uh, a religious leader who's doing good for the world. Uh, but some negative reports started to emerge over time about members having to give up their belongings, their homes, even custody of their children. And uh, that's when the government started paying attention to some of these reports. And at that point, he convinced his congregation uh, of a, maybe about 900, over 900 members to uh, move with him down to Paradise. And apparently Paradise was in Guyana. And so they moved to the middle of nowhere in the jungle where they were attacked by mosquitoes all the time. And had to work the fields um, in order to provide for their living. And had all of their passports and medications confiscated with armed, guard, with armed guards patrolling the jungles and their uh, compound. And this was their, their new paradise. And once their members were stuck in this jungle, they really had nowhere else to go. Kenny, you make this sound like this is not your paradise. Your idea of paradise is not going <laughs> No. Listen, we're, uh, just like our last episode, you know, paradise does not, in my mind, doesn't involve um, field work all day. <laughs> it doesn't involve, you know, being bitten by mosquitoes. 
because for whatever reason, mosquitoes definitely love my blood the most <laughs> out of uh, anyone else if I, you know, go hiking with. We need to test so, this theory, Kenny, because I also feel that way. And so we'll have oh a my competition. God, me too. <laughs> Who gets attacked the worst by the mosquitoes? All three of us in That's the it. same room once all of this is over, and we will release a bunch of mosquitoes and see who dies first. I hate this test, but I'm also curious. Yeah. Yeah, Your so this idea... is definitely not the paradise I, I envision. Your idea of paradise is a lot like mine. It has air conditioning. It's inside. Yeah. yeah. Air conditioning inside a buffet. Um, yeah. Yeah. It could be a good time to point out, though, that uh, Jim Jones, because I was curious about, you know, his upbringing, how he might have become the person that he is. And he is a person who grew up with very little during the Great Depression. He grew up in a shack without plumbing. And apparently he was the type of person who had a really hard time making friends, which is why he read so many texts from, you know, great role models like Stalin and Hitler and biblical texts as well to build his his wealth of knowledge that he was later able to mobilize yeah he came from a very dysfunctional family as well um and so he was always looking for community um and and he ended up finding that in in the pentecostal church um Mm. but people who knew him back then like childhood friends and stuff i guess like he would lock them in a barn or something and proselytize to them and like they couldn't get out. Um, but he was very obsessed with religion and, and actually death as well. So he would have these funerals for animals that died, but he also killed the animals and like mutilated animals. So like really serial killer beginning stuff. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's sort of the, the behaviors of a serial killer is, is, um, is like the animal abuse and stuff like that. So there, there were like maybe signs that he was a little unhinged in his early childhood. Um, <clears throat> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And as a result of his craziness, um, the, uh, a U.S. Senator uh, flew down to Guyana to see for himself about, uh, some of the reports that were out there about, um, people wanting to leave but not being able to because their passports have been compensated and it turned out that yes you know there definitely were a few members that were uh, desperate to kind of leave the compound and uh crazy jim jones decided to send his um his armed guards to essentially shoot um the senator and people that were attempting to flee and then convinced this entire all all of his followers to uh, basically mix some cyanide with some Kool Aid, uh, or I mean, I, we don't know if it's actually Kool Aid, but some kind of flavored um, fruit fruit drink, and had the youngest members first drink it, or have their parents kind of uh, uh, provide the fluid. Uh, for their children and then basically the entire community of over 900 people uh, drank the cyanide and died of suicide Uh, and him himself died of a self-inflicted gun shot so when we think about uh, the 900 over the 900 people 
Uh, a third of them were children. And this was one of the worst kind of uh, uh, mass killings uh, in history. And this this was the, the power that he had over uh, his followers. He was able to convince people to literally drink the Kool-Aid, which is kind of where this phrase, uh, this phrase came from. And uh, people actually, you know, willingly died by suicide. I find it really interesting how this all went down because there's actually like an audio recording of this whole incident. Um, and then there's the stories of the people who were there. Um, it wasn't just that these people wanted, like some of them did want to commit suicide. They really believed in um, Jim Jones. And he like, whenever he was in the U.S. proselytizing and stuff um, before they left for for Guyana, um, there was a lot of faith healing, but it was faith healing with like planted audience members. So like mm-hmm. his secretaries and stuff like that. So people believed he had these powers. They believed that God was sort of working through him. And so that's what led them to Guyana. And then once they were in Guyana, um, the whole group and the whole community had this thing set up where, Um, And because Jim Jones was this very paranoid person, he was actually on drugs before he left, which made him really paranoid. And then there was this um, investigative report that was going to come out. So he was like, "Okay, overnight, we're just going to go. So like overnight, they just left before this report came out. Um, But it was built into this community that you don't, you don't um, say that you want to leave. And so people in their own families were telling on each other about things. And there was this really weird um, exploitative thing where they, um, they would have to sit in front of the group and talk about their, the sins that they have committed. Um, And then they would um, either get like humiliated or sometimes beaten or, um, you know, things like that. And uh, so it's built into the community that you just kind of tell on each other um, for your indiscretions. And so people didn't actually like the, the congressman brought reporters with him and, um, people didn't want to tell the reporters that they weren't happy. So a couple people slipped them notes um, saying we're not happy. And that kind of gave the Senator this idea like, okay, we need to help these people get out of here. Um, And, and then a whole bunch of people started coming forward. And after that had happened, and then a bunch of people were coming forward and saying, yeah, yeah, we don't want to be here either. Um, Help us get out of here. We want to, we want to get out and we can't, go like we can't leave um and uh yeah so some of these people probably didn't want to to die like this um and then uh Jim got everyone onto a pavilion and he surrounded them with armed guards and said here is the Kool-Aid and then they literally ripped babies from people's arms and gave them the Kool-Aid and uh I mean if you're a parent once your child dies like you're probably just so um upset and so distraught and and Jim was like making it seem like if we don't do this the government's going to come in and they're going to torture you like he literally said they're going to torture you um 
And um, he made this really urgent um, appeal to his group saying, we've got to do it now. We've got to do it now. They're going to come in. They're going to torture you. They're going to kill you. We have to we have to do this before they can do it. We have to meet each other on the next sort of afterlife plane. Yeah, it's very sad. It's so sad. Very cray cray. I, I just can't imagine, you know, how, if, if you were there and your reality is collapsing all around you, you know, realizing this was a huge mistake. Like, what do you do? Yeah. You're surrounded by armed guards. That's the thing that gets me is, um, you know, they're not all true believers. They're not all, you know, eager to, to drink the Kool-Aid and get to paradise. You know, they're all going, it's either the Kool-Aid or a bullet. You mm-hmm. are going one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I can't I can't imagine what that must have felt like, especially since they're in this other country where, like, how can you escape? Mm-hmm. And I think, like, five people did escape into the jungle, and then there were a few people who were at the plane where the congressman was shot um, that were able to survive after being shot. They somehow survived. Like, uh, I, I don't even know how you survive something like that. And yeah, these people must be so damaged. Like, I can't, I can't imagine it would just break me to, to watch other people die around me. I don't even know what I would do. What would you do in that situation? All these people, all your friends, all your family are dying all around you. And you've got guns in your vicinity of like, hey, you take this or you get a bullet? Like, oh God, what would you do? No right answer. I'd like to think that I'd be the the hero who tried to start the insurrection against the armed guards, but it's impossible to know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 900 people. I mean, clearly no one was successful at an insurrection. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. It's it's just like this this whole thing is is sort of touted as a suicide but it's really Jim Jones committed mass murder. I don't I don't believe that many of those people were in their right minds and he influenced them to kill themselves. Like it's just murder. Yeah. So this this is the power of cults. I mean, you have this leader who has indoctrinated uh, the concept that know this he he knows best and when he tells you it's time to go to the afterlife it's time yeah and his armed guards obviously believed him pretty wholeheartedly so wow sad it's yeah so maybe uh uh, we can transition to a more modern time uh cult so even though this happened in the 70s cults have been around forever Mm -hmm. and they even after this incident they did not disappear. That was one of like the major big cults that we saw, but there's often like, there's still a lot of smaller cults that are around even now um, that just sort of go unnoticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Often because they're not branded as cults, as we briefly talked about beforehand, nobody who's in a cult thinks they're in a cult until they get out and then it's exposed to them. What kind of things they were doing were all cult activities. Mm-hmm. So a more recent one uh, would be Nexium, um, and who who wants to give a quick overview of what Nexium is? Nexium. Well, that is definitely one that uh, succeeded in creating cover story. 
They're branded as the Executive Success Program, a self-help group that uh, lured people in with promises of bettering themselves. And uh, I don't have like a, a great summary of the the intro to it, so maybe you could take over, Sherry. Yeah, so it was created by this guy named Keith Ranieri. Um, and in his earlier life, before Nixium, also Nixium, can we talk about the title, like the name of this group, N-X-V-I-M? Who even like how how did they even come up with that spelling? I don't I don't know. Yeah, but, how does it come from? How does that even spell? Yeah, how does it even spell Nexium? Why do we say Nexium when we look at that word? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, anyway, he was um, in his earlier life. He did. Uh, he got successful with this uh, pyramid scheme called um consumers byline and Mm. it was this like weird pyramid scheme that got shut down when the government realized it was a pyramid scheme um and so from there he started this nixium cult um and um he touted it as this like self-help group where you've got tiers or levels uh that you move through um, and they wear different colored sashes for each level. Expensive, so, too. I noticed yes. that there's like a seven to $10,000 per course fee for this. Like, who could even afford that? I would have thought that would create a real entry barrier to something like this. Well, that's the thing is that they started off by bringing in these really um, high-end clientele people. Like they brought in, they wanted to target sort of the famous and the rich and the influential people. Um, And so these people were able to spend the money and everyone else just like put all of their money into this. Because if you want to move up to the next level, if you want to become a coach, if you want to become a proctor or whatever, then you have to spend this money. So in order to move up from different levels, you have to take certain courses and also you have to introduce people into the cult. So, um, so you have to bring people in and they have to experience this like introductory five day, um, course. And, and, and that counts to your total number of people who you've brought in. And so, um, you have all these members who are like bringing in their family, their friends, all these people just so that they can move up to the next, um, next level. Um, yeah, that's, that's how they essentially set up the incentives, right? If you want to grow your base, you got to, they create incentive for members to recruit more and more people. And, you know, cults don't advertise you know, their services on any type of uh, advertising platform, they rely on their members to pull in more and more members. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he kind of, so Keith Ranieri was like, I feel like a really smart man. He knew how to talk to people and he knew really how to manipulate them. Um, But he also said that all of his teachings, all of his tools are based off of science. So he was saying things like he knew a lot about psychology. So, for instance, he knew about the Stanford prison experiments where um, uh, two groups of people were put into um, a prison and one were prison guards and one were um, prisoners. And they had to act out the roles and get the prisoners to tell them something And so he knew about all of this different psychology and he even talked about it in his courses and things like that. 
Um, so even like he explicitly talks about these ideas of psychology and then he uses it on them. Uh, so he had one course where it was like, um, and this came from all of my information comes from the vow, which is the HBO documentary. It's just so good. You should watch all of it. And it's just so captivating. But this woman talks, she, she was sort of in the higher levels of this organization. She talks about taking this, this course, um, about how men and women um, understand each other. And it was putting the women into the place of men sort of was the idea. Um, So the men were mistreating the women um, as, as they would have been treated when they were, they were men growing up in society. So it was taking these societal roles and putting them on, the women, it was making them physically do things um, like push-ups or wall sits or whatever. And then they were humiliated when they couldn't do it or or something like that. And that was the general premise of it. But it was sort of like this Stanford experiment. I think it was used to explain it to the participants. Like this is this is the experiment that happened and we're going to try and recreate a little bit of that. And so like they were putting themselves through this, um, like knowing about the psychology and and Keith Raniere knew about the psychology and there's tons of really interesting psychology about that like obviously lots of it is is sort of forbidden now you can't put people into those positions anymore like morally you can't do that but Keith Raniere he knew about all of the psychology he knew about you know peer pressure studies where you've got a group of people and you ask them a question like which line is the longest and on this sheet of paper and you've got everyone else in the study is planted and there's one actual participant and so everyone else says the the very obviously incorrect answer and then this one participant says the incorrect answer as well because they're peer pressured into it Mm -hmm. and so like this guy he knew he knew about all of this psychology he knew how to manipulate these people and he used it on them it's just so mind-boggling this man it's just I can't I I can't even believe this man he's oh yeah he's in prison now (laughs) For 120 years. 120 years. Just to tell everybody (laughs) so you don't think this has a bad ending like Jonestown. (laughs) It gets 120 years. Get him away. (laughs) Sorry, you were going to say, Rory. (laughs) I was going to say, yeah, I totally agree. A true psychopath to mobilize psychological studies in this way and for his advantage. I was very impressed with the level of elites that he was able to, to sucker with this. Like I, I, part of the documentary that I read said that he got sixty million dollars from the the Bronfman Sisters Trust Fund. People yeah, who have they were... that much money don't tend to be as susceptible. I thought, mm-hmm. but yeah, but they the were... thing is, you keep you keep building up uh, when you have like almost like references, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you can mention, oh, I got this rich person or this famous person, like it keeps building uh, because there's that. Uh, it's almost like trust. Yeah, that's he's building his trust, brand. But, uh, vol- validity, yeah, uh, of his brand. And, you know, <laughs> eventually you're going to amass more and more money or uh, richer and richer people. And at the same time, you're able to convince people that aren't as rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot more of them because they view it as, oh, this is legitimate because this famous person or this rich person yeah. is part of this group look at the insane resources that this person has committed to this and project. look at how successful 
look at how successful they've been, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he managed to convince a lot of different people and bring them in, especially in the Hollywood sector as well. So Allison Mack is one of the key players in all of this, uh, and she was in Smallville. And uh, Kristen Crook, I think, is the other one who was with her for a short time but then got out of it. Um, and then there were some people from Battlestar Galactica who were also involved. Like, there, there's a lot of, like, Hollywood elites. And so if you're going to these meetings and you see Allison Mack and you've just watched Smallville, like, I would be like, whoa, that's Allison Mack. That's so cool. <laughs> I want to get to know you and be your friend. Yeah. <laughs> but not Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> I love that show. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Um, the Cylons but, um, are a part of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Cylon plot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's it's impressive once you think about how many influential people are a part of this. I just double checked because, mm-hmm. yeah, Smallville was actually still going on because this cult hit its high point at like 2005 or something like that. And Smallville ran from 2001 to 2011. So she was in it while she was an actress. In Smallville. And probably well-known, right? Like, everyone would have known she's an active uh, actress. Yeah, she hadn't faded out of the limelight. She was still a star at that point. So, my understanding is there were, uh, like, incidences of, um, like, physical abuse and also sexual abuse as part of the cult. Is that correct? 100%. The inner circle of uh, Keith Raniere was all women that he abused as far as i know and Doss, his secret sorority were all you know maybe the most grotesque part of uh this before you get to the murders anyways is they were all branded with his initials yeah so it was it's called uh it was like dominus obsequious sororium and it means Mm -hmm. masters over female slaves and it was actually started by (laughs) right (laughs) God, I'm cringing. Yeah, it's such a cringy <laughs> title. Oh. But, like, they didn't know And who thought this is a good idea? <laughs> I mean, you're obviously so. in it for a while at that point to, to go for that. Keith Raniere thought it was a good idea. And so he got Allison Mack to start it, essentially, because apparently he is the sort of the headmaster and she is his slave. Um and um, so essentially it, it, what it is, is every woman involved in this has a master and they are a slave to somebody and then they become a master and then they have their own slaves. So it's again, this another pyramid within the pyramid scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you have to do whatever the master wants. You have to run all of your calories by this master. Like you have to go, you're running on a calorie deficit. So not only are you running on a sleep deficit, but he also wanted women to be running on a calorie deficit. So you have to run everything you eat by your master, um, everything you do, all of these things. Um, and so the vow really went into this because one of the women sort of who was high up in the company became a part of DOS because somebody approached her, one of her really close friends approached her and and sort of floated this idea and she thought it would be funny or whatever. And, and all of a sudden her friends started talking to her more. And so, so it had that sort of um, hold over her because, you know, somebody she maybe talked to once a month is now talking to her every day and she loves this person. 
Um, and, uh, this person said like, look, there's this weird thing where you have to give collateral. So you have to give me like an embarrassing secret or something like that. And so what this person did was like, they just, and, and cause she was like, I can't come up with anything. I don't know. Like, what have I got as a, an embarrassing secret? And so they actually videotaped her as if they were having this like spontaneous conversation where she was admitting to like all these awful atrocities that maybe, I think some of them were about her husband, how her husband like beats her kids or something like that. And uh, whatever, like it was some awful stuff and it was on videotape and it went to her master. And then, and so your master essentially has this blackmail on mm-hmm. you. So you can't leave this group. Um, and so once you, once it gets floated to be branded, your master already has this blackmail over you and, oh, it's not a big deal, whatever. And they were all branded with Keith Raniere's initials, but like done in a, a weird way. Yeah. Is... So it looks like a symbol, but it's mm-hmm. once you know what you're looking for, then you can see the letters. Yeah. And so, Ugh. yeah, so you're in this organization with, with like, this master and you can't get out of it uh, because this person has collateral and they keep asking for more collateral. So this woman ended up giving up, you know, um, naked shots. Like, her friend came over, her master came over and took some naked shots of her and and now has those in her possession. And all of this stuff is actually in Keith Raniere's possession as well mm-hmm. um, because you have to hand it up the chain, essentially. That and um, the documentary I watched mentioned that he had his own private internet. You know, it, it was their own closed network, but he had access to all of everyone's information. So it was just a, a method for him to spy on everyone simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of that is just... There's so much gross about it. Mm-hmm. Like, ugh, <laughs> makes me feel icky. Yeah. And we haven't even gotten to the, the worst parts yet. The the worst part? I thought that was the worst part. <laughs> well, these parts are, are more conjecture. They're, they're unproven, but he is suspected of the murder of two of his followers, Kristen Snyder and Gina Hutchinson, both of which apparently committed suicide, but under very suspicious circumstances. Like Snyder claiming that she'd been impregnated by Keith, which was probably true, had an outburst at one of his sessions and was forcibly removed by staff. And then the only thing anybody ever saw of her afterwards was her truck parked by a a kayak shop in Anchorage, Alaska, and a missing kayak and a suicide note left behind that was written in a handwriting that didn't even remotely match her handwriting but her body was never found. She just disappeared off the face of the earth. And then there was Gina Hutchinson, who alleged that uh, Keith Raniere had raped her when she was 14. This was when he was running his other uh, scheme, his initial startup pyramid. Consumer's and, byline. Right, that one. <laughs> yeah. So she, her family was involved in that one. And she was going to create problems for him when he was trying to get some of these wealthy investors. And so next thing, she turns up by a Buddhist monk temple, having apparently shot herself in the head with a 12-gauge shotgun. Which is an incredibly unladylike thing to do for suicide. And Also, you have to hold it really weird. Like, yeah, they were working out the logistics, shotgun. and with her body and arm length, it didn't appear that she would have been able to pull the trigger, but somehow it was still ruled a suicide. So as I say, very 
still conjecture, but very suspicious circumstances. Hmm. Also, two more women who lived with Keith Raniere, Barbara Jeske and uh, Pamela Kafritz, both suffered from cancer, which you know seems unrelated at first until you realize that uh, they had levels of heavy metal in their system that suggested they'd been susceptible. They'd been uh, poisoned with rat poison over a long period of time, like small doses of rat poison is one of the ways that you can get the, this heavy metal in your system. And one of them had brain cancer, another had bladder cancer. You know, all these women suffering from cancer who, of course, left Keith Raniere as the executor to their wills. Just one more mm-hmm. level of insidious evil that this person was perpetrating, potentially, allegedly. I allegedly yeah. believe that he did that. I do too. <laughs> I mm-hmm. I choose to believe, <laughs> um, but uh, he's gone away for for uh, to prison. No chance of parole. Hopefully, I don't think so. I I think 120 years is his minimum sentence. That he's and a bunch for. of yeah, a bunch of the people in like in the top of the organization. In Allison Mack, uh, Nancy something, can't remember her name. There's a few others who kind of were at the top of the organization. Also, I think they pled guilty to a bunch of charges. Yeah, Allison Mack was uh, sex trafficking, I believe. And racketeering. I think they were. Mm-hmm. They pled guilty to racketeering as well. They're still mm-hmm. awaiting mm-hmm. sentencing, the last I knew. Yeah. Um, Do you know if they have admitted to being part of this cult, or are they still in their bubble of belief right now i don't know i'm not sure they haven't really spoken out i don't think they're really allowed to by their lawyers to really speak out um this documentary followed um a woman whose whose daughter was still in the cult and they were trying to get her out a woman named india um and she has since gotten out of the cult and and sort of realized that she was in a cult and all of that like there's only maybe 50 followers that are still a part of it um yeah, so Keith Raniere is actually holding um, telephone calls with his followers to like continue um, control over them. Still giving them instructions from behind the the plexiglass in prison, eh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's so insidious. Like he he ended up, you know, with this these sex trafficking charges and stuff. Like he was having sex with these women so that they could get ahead in the organization or that they could be accepted. And like, and also he created this organization where if you left, you were excommunicated. I hate this idea of excommunication and that like some, like some legitimate religions still use that kind of thing, like to excommunicate somebody that's so harsh for a religion that sort of touts love and acceptance. Yeah. And inclusivity and, bringing mm-hmm. people into the fold to declare mm-hmm. someone a lost cause. And... Because that's where they gain power. It's really if their followers are uh, blindly following the leader, that's power. And mm-hmm. they definitely do not want to give up that power. Mm-hmm. So they have to make the penalty harsh. Yeah. And they encase it in this idea of they have been sinful um, and now they're too sinful for us to communicate with. Like you can't communicate with them because maybe their sin will transfer to you. Yeah. They want to bring you down. They want to bring you down. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's just, it's awful. 
It's mm-hmm. oh, it's so awful. Yeah. So when it comes to these followers, uh, it's pretty difficult to actually deprogram someone once they've been in a cult. And as we already mentioned, you know, people in cults don't think they are actually in a cult. And uh, when family members try to make them leave or convince them to leave, uh, a lot of times it's not very successful, uh, especially if you're trying to use logic mm-hmm. uh, in front of them. So in the 60s, the families used to actually hire deprogrammers, like people who would actually go and kidnap their family members and you know lock them in a room and actually work with them to kind of deprogram them. Uh, that doesn't quite occur anymore because apparently kidnapping is illegal. But this is <laughs> the best use of kidnapping that I could ever have imagined. Yeah, but, uh, but uh, apparently it's illegal. Um, so, uh, you can't do that anymore. So no one, uh, kidnaps people and, um, try to deprogram them. Uh, but deprogramming is actually quite challenging because trying to convince someone who has these ingrained beliefs, it, it really takes time. Uh, and it, it, a lot of times now people are encouraged to just stay in contact with these cult members and actually try to maintain some kind of dialogue because ultimately the cult is trying to separate them from their families and working to try to maintain that connection is one of the very first steps uh, because uh, if if that connection is severed then obviously it's a lost cause you're, you're never going to uh, get that person back. Mm-hmm. So trying to maintain that connection is one of the first and most important steps. And one of the techniques that they've used in the past has been in these discussions with uh, a cult member, it's really not trying to point out the fact that they are in a cult, but the goal should be to try to help them realize by themselves that they are in a cult. Um, so it could be revolve around asking open-ended questions. It could be uh, asking questions uh, unrelated to their cult, like maybe talk about another cult or, uh, or another form of brainwashing. Uh, so perhaps, for example, you might maybe talk about China, for example, and how the country uh, controls... Uh, the media and kind of censors, you know, what's talked about uh, for the country. Mm-hmm. And so it's unrelated to a cult, but to help them slowly realize uh, parallels to other other things that are happening yeah. in society that that's not associated with the yeah, cult. Censorship over there is this kind of the same as the censorship I was experiencing. Ah, mm-hmm. something there. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the key is really, it, it takes a long time, but it's to help them make these connections in their heads. And the analogy that's given is they likely have some doubt, doubts in the back of their minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might have a shelf in the back of their minds where they're putting their doubts on top of the shelf. The goal is to start layering these doubts uh, to put more and more items on the shelf until the shelf actually breaks. Oh, that is a brutal Um, analogy. I can imagine that shelf breaking being very painful emotionally for the individual. It, it it takes an immense amount of time, but um, at least that's, that's one of the 
techniques that are being used right now. Yeah. Watching the vow, like it, it definitely is once that shelf breaks, it's so painful for those people, especially for something like Nixium, where um, you've brought members into like the whole point of you moving up these levels is by bringing in people like you hold that guilt. Like a lot of these people that were interviewed are holding that guilt of I brought this person into this organization and I've ruined their lives. I've I have, you know, um, made them vulnerable to sexual exploitation, to physical exploitation. And um, I can't imagine the type of guilt that that -hmm. you must feel that you're you've brought people in. And then and then to actually come to grips with I I fell for this this organization. I fell for this. The ideals of this human was espousing like it's. Yeah. Yeah. Craziness. You got to get out somehow, and I, I wanted to keep it to the positives of of Kenny and and getting us out of the the cult. Because if I was in it, deprogramming an emotional breakdown or not, and the heavy heavy responsibility of having involved other people, it has to stop. There has to be an end point, and working against the cult is definitely better than just staying in and and absorbing the sunk cost and letting it continue on and hurt more and more people. Mm-hmm. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. And, and commending these people for getting out, um, is one of those things like saying <laughs> you were involved in this cult. You didn't realize that the people you were bringing in, you were bringing them into a cult. You didn't know that it was a cult. So, you know, as much as you want to blame yourself, like, you know, give yourself just a little bit of a break there because you were under the thralls of this as well. You were also exploited. Mm-hmm. Um, and good for you for getting out. Yeah. And to lighten up the mood a little, um, have you guys seen the episode of The Office where Michael, uh, the boss, is scammed into a, <laughs> a pyramid scheme? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have not. Please. Continue. <laughs> no, basically, he, he he's talking to his employees about how uh, you know he he joined up with this uh, fast way of making money, and he's like explaining it to his employees, and his employees are like, "That sounds like a pyramid scheme." And so he he stops everyone's like, "I'm I'm going to draw it out on the whiteboard." <laughs> he, he starts drawing out on the whiteboard. So this is you know I can see this person this <laughs> recruit, recruits these people, and then these people recruit these people, and it and then some uh, Jim walks up to the whiteboard and just draws <laughs> yeah. a triangle. On. <laughs> um, and I'm like, oh, yep. <laughs> and then there's this realization on his face that he, he literally just drew a pyramid. <laughs> It's funny that these these cults, these cults that get big and these, you know, even religions are very pyramid schemey of like you bring in so many members and then they bring in so many members and mm. yeah, yeah, very pyramid scheme. Like that's what they need to survive. Mhm. Mm-hmm. It does seem mm-hmm. to be that way that they all form yeah. that structure. Yeah, and that's why I found yeah. it so interesting that Keith Raniere began his life as a pyramid schemer. Mm-hmm. And and this is where he's ended up with it. Yeah, it's the same techniques, right? They use the same techniques uh, to not need to gain the financial uh, capabilities to survive and expand, mm-hmm. uh, 
but you know, it's how they recruit more and more people and amass more and more power. Yeah. It happens financially as well as religiously. I've heard of several pyramid and Ponzi schemes that follow the same kind of structure of if I just work my way up the next tier, then that's where the golden land is. That That's the keys to the kingdom. But no, you're still at the bottom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think we should wrap up and <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> hopefully was... next time we'll be, a... we'll, we'll talk about something a little more positive yeah, next time. Review for a topic that does not come with an explicit content warning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This was a little bit of a bummer. I find, I find cults so interesting. Like I'm very interested in cults and, um, and I feel bad. I feel like I've, you know, let my passion overtake me a little bit in this episode. But, like, I find them psychologically so interesting. And yet, mm-hmm. I, and then when you think about the human cost of all this, it just, it just sort of leads you into mm-hmm. a, a deep well of sadness. <laughs> yes. But I think it's good to raise the awareness of this because, I mean, it, it, cults have existed for so long and they keep sh- popping up, right? And raising the awareness of this yeah. maybe will help others uh, avoid joining a cult. Yeah, recognizing the structure and, you know, that you shouldn't have to get invested in working your way through the tiers in order to get the, the merit out of whatever you're enrolled in. Yeah, exactly. You don't need a sash, people. <laughs> you don't you need, need a, a sash. Hug. <laughs> just need a hug. <laughs> So have you guys heard about the Scientology thing? I've heard it's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> it has on the science fringe. in the name. On the fringes. I know. There's science in the name. Some popular celebrities part of it too. Yeah, exactly. And if they're we in look it, into anyways. That. <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everyone. So we will see you in our next episode. See you later. Until yeah. next time. I was going to say, for some reason, when I said claptastic, I immediately thought of venereal disease. Mm. <laughs> okay, good. So that's going to the bloopers. Thanks. <laughs> Rory, that was out of nowhere. I don't know why my brain did that either. That was very random. Just okay. fired the connection. <laughs>